The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 5, Part 6, Values to Future-Proof Australia. First value, independence in national sovereignty. Chomsky's dire warning about the dread gap between our technical capacity to destroy ourselves and our moral capacity to control this impulse is likely to resonate with Australians in a way that will influence the shape of future values, values which may not be front and centre in our rational discourse yet, but which we will soon discover are essential if we are to navigate our way to a safe future. In particular, there is already some evidence of Australians having begun to sense the need for independence in sovereignty and two associated values of self-sufficiency and resilience. These three values are closely related and they underpin our ability to stand on our own two feet, both in defending ourselves in case of foreign attack and in withstanding lengthy crises affecting the supply of essentials. This sense of the need for independence in national sovereignty has been dialled up somewhat due to the coincidence of two recent events. The first was the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, an event which highlighted our current inability to sustain ourselves with sufficient essentials like fuel, medical supplies, PPE, properly equipped hospital beds, doctors, nurses, aged care workers and vaccines. It also highlighted the precariousness of our current economic structure, which is reliant on the foreign-owned and controlled maritime trade system for 98% of our imports and exports. The next 25 Navigator survey of 3,000 Australians launched in the first year of the pandemic, 2020, laid bare the fact that Australians had absorbed a new understanding of our exposure and vulnerability to these risks. In that survey, 76% responded that it was important for Australia to be self-sufficient and able to stand on its own two feet as a country. This initial surge in a desire for self-sufficiency and an ability to stand on our own two feet may not have lasted long, as evidenced by the fact that in the Havis Lab study in 2022, only 42% of Australians rated resilience as an important value for the nation, albeit that this importance rating still placed resilience in the top 10 national values in that study. However, the lower importance score may simply reflect a realisation of the impracticability of cutting ourselves off from the world in terms of trade, rather than a reversal of the desire to stand on our own two feet. On the other hand, it may indicate a reversion to the complacency of trust in the American alliance, a trust and dependence which is perhaps perceived as an easier option than standing on our own two feet, and which increased markedly between 2020 and 2022, as evidenced by the 2022 Lowy Institute poll. That poll registered a sudden jump in agreement that it is likely that China will become a military threat to Australia in the next 20 years. Between 2009 and 2018, an average of 43% of Australians had thought it might be likely that China would become a military threat, 
16% thought it very likely, and 27% somewhat likely. But by 2022, after some aggressive beating of the drums of war by a vocal Australian bureaucrat, Mike Pizzullo, the Minister for Defence, Peter Dutton, and the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which has been partly funded by US and other foreign arms dealers, the perception that China will become a military threat to Australia in the next 20 years almost doubled to 75%. 32% thought it very likely and 43% thought it somewhat likely. That bespeaks some very effective fear-mongering about China, and that has in turn obviously played a substantial part in transforming views about the necessity of our dependence on the American alliance. This may have been boosted further by the commencement of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the five years to 2021, an average of 75% of Australians had thought the US alliance was important for Australia's security, but the importance of the alliance in the eyes of Australians had been trending to decline over the decade. In 2022, however, its perceived importance suddenly jumped to 87%, indicating a preference for flight to the protection of the US, even though the same survey showed that Australians had clearly comprehended that such a flight would be more likely to expose Australia to involvement in a war that is not in our interests. The Lowy poll reported that, quote, 77% agreed that Australia's alliance with the United States makes it more likely that Australia will be drawn into a war in Asia that would not be in Australia's interests, unquote. Obviously, Australians do not find it hard to discern that a war with China, their biggest trading partner and one which happens to have nuclear capability, is highly unlikely to work out well and that this likely adverse result will probably be made worse, not better, by siding with America. Most reason that it is better to remain neutral and do nothing to start such a war, or at least they did reason thus before persuasion was applied to convince more of them that their sovereignty and democracy will be at risk unless they are prepared to put the state on a constant war footing, fermenting the very conflict we should prefer to avoid. Perhaps Australians, in thinking through their options, have then reasoned that an increase in our subscription to the US alliance, an alliance that is intent on containment of China by organised, precipitate military brinksmanship or aggression, is the lesser of two evils. But if Australians agree that the war they are being drawn into is not in their interests, it is incumbent on governments to ask them just how far they are prepared to go with the American alliance. After all, if it involves ceding sovereignty entirely to America and ceding it to enter a war that we do not think is in our interest, then what is the point? Haven't we lost what we value most, sovereignty over our continent, democracy and destinies, even before a war with China starts? What we may be witnessing here is a slow unfolding of the iterations in a debate full of such questions, questions about how Australia relates to the world while still safely navigating its way to a destination of security, questions about whether we can continue to be the only nation in the world with unified sovereignty over an entire continent. I would suggest that this is exactly what we are witnessing, a nation struggling with a realisation about the continuance of our luck 
and dim but discernible intimation of the fragility of our tenure over the continent, brought on first by the pandemic and then by a second alarming event in 2021. That second event was the announcement of the AUKUS Trilateral Security Pact, which foreshadowed the possibility that Australia might, at very great expense, irretrievably lock itself into another nation's defence programmes, those, of course, being the programmes of the United States to contain China, and to contain it by means not just of competition in trade or conventional military skirmishes in distant lands and seas, but by means of deployment of nuclear armaments. AUKUS was developed in secret and foisted on the Australian people without even a gesture towards their consent. It resulted in a rush of quite justifiable fears, at least in progressive quarters, that Australia was surrendering its independence and sovereignty. As one of Australia's most preeminent defence and intelligence analysts, Emeritus Professor Hugh White, observed at the time of the bombshell announcement, quote, Now, AUKUS implies a much closer merging, if not complete identification, of our interests with Washington's in dealing with China, unquote. Progressive campaigners for peace, such as the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN Australia, were not alone in condemnation of this closer merging or complete identification of interests, commenting in early 2022 that, quote, the recently announced AUKUS security pact between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, which pledges a nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia, is vastly out of step with a strong sense of Pacific regionalism and the long-standing commitment to a nuclear-free Pacific. The pact also promises further trilateral collaboration under AUKUS to enhance joint capabilities and interoperability, including cyber capabilities, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies and additional undersea capabilities. This decision results from escalating rivalry between the United States and China, in which Australia has been portrayed as the deputy sheriff, or otherwise the 51st state of the United States of America. Unquote. AUKUS, being announced as it was without Australians being given the chance to confirm that it is in their interests, clearly signalled that a significant surrender of statehood had been negotiated, enough to rob Australians of a capacity to reject entry into another nation's wars and nationalistic campaigns. This might explain the results of the Haverslab study, which so distinctly relegated nationalism towards the bottom of the important scale on our personal values. It would seem Australians reject nationalism when it morphs into jingoism and into seeding of a command over our own defence forces and decisions, especially when we are simultaneously capable of absorbing the plain truth that a US alliance of the type envisaged in AUKUS, essentially a pact for nuclear offensives, makes it more likely that Australia will be drawn into a war in Asia that would not be in Australia's interests. In the wake of the pandemic, climate disasters and AUKUS, the Haverslab study may indicate that Australians could be verging, albeit haltingly, 
towards development of a value set that they feel will be the most likely to secure the future of a nation situated geographically and economically a long way from the production centres of many of its vital supplies and yet well within the firing line in the event of a designed or accidental nuclear escalation. This is a subject for more research, but available evidence suggests that Australians are instinctively and quite cleverly attempting in that context to develop what I might call an armoury of resilience or a practical capacity for independence. The Havis Lab study hints strongly at what this armoury might contain. It contains priority values which have nothing to do with relying on alliances or nationalism and everything to do with relying on each other. The results show the values we want to dial up for the future. They are equal opportunity for all, honesty, freedom, sustainability and compassion. These have not been articulated as a call for independence per se, partly because none of the studies have asked whether we value our sovereign independence. But there is little doubt that Australia as a nation has arrived at a point where we are attempting to decide just how independent we wish to be and just how much of our independence and self-governance we might be willing to sacrifice for the protection we might get from trading it away. It is extremely important to develop an understanding of this and refine our nations, as opposed to our government's, position on it, particularly if, as has been foreshadowed, Australians will be asked once again whether they wish to become a republic if the Australian Labor Party is awarded a second term of office in 2025, and particularly if they are to be asked to commit hundreds of billions of dollars to the armoury of a foreign nation. This is what AUKUS entails a consignment of our defence capability and therefore independent command of our military forces and decisions on military campaigns to the United States. Governments, both Labour and Liberal National, might be ready to cede sovereignty on our behalf. Indeed, Australia's new Defence Minister, Richard Miles, indicated an intention on a visit to Washington in July 2022 to merge American and Australian interests, at least in terms of defence, as Sydney University historian Professor James Curran reported, quote, Miles ushered in a new concept. Australia and US military forces would not only be interoperable, but interchangeable. Spelling it out, he said the two forces could then operate seamlessly together at speed. Miles is still sending the message, albeit differently from Peter Dutton, that Australia is readying for war, unquote. Curran then remarked that, quote, in rapturous, if not sweaty rhetoric, Miles spoke of the alliance in terms much like his predecessors did in London at the height of empire. The relationship was not bound only by the ANZUS Treaty, he said. It was a network of people committed to a shared project, meaning global dominance. Unquote. In his speech, Miles followed through on an ethos promoted in 2016 by a former Labour Party Defence Minister, Kim Beasley, jocularly known among the powerful as Bomber Beasley, and at one time a board member of American weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin. 
Beasley had suggested that Australia was indeed not bound only by the ANZUS Treaty, but was furthermore interested in acting beyond its confines. As Curran noted, quote, Speaking of the challenges facing the US armed forces, Beasley said that in the next five years, the Americans are going to talk about integration. Australia, he noted, was vastly more deeply engaged with the US military than it had been during the Cold War, and the Americans would in the future want states prepared to do things, a show of hands of those prepared not to act necessarily in accordance with the strict terms of the triggers in alliance relationships. Unquote. This would imply that the Australia-US alliance relationship now defines no limits on the extent to which it may be co-opted or entirely redefined at the will of a belligerent America. We can be pressured into wars at the will of the US. Since World War II, we may have come to accept this participation in America's wars as a relatively benign state of affairs because the wars we rushed into were not in our region or were not likely to attract nuclear retaliation. However, that safe isolation from the theatre of wars we might rush to in future at the behest of the US may no longer apply. In considering this, James Curran opined that, quote, the Defence Minister's rhetoric of interchangeability with US forces goes to the heart of the debate that ought to be had in this country about policy flexibility and autonomy in the age of AUKUS, unquote. But we are not yet set up to have that debate. Space needs to be made for it urgently, because Australians have given no indication that ceding sovereignty and independence is in their interests. The only thing they have indicated in this regard is that they have a preference to remain neutral in the event of a military conflict between China and the United States, or at least 57% indicated as such in the 2021 Lowy poll, while only 41% thought we should support the United States. In the 2022 Lowy poll, after the invasion of Ukraine, only 51% indicated a preference to remain neutral and 46% thought we should support the US. However, in both polls, there was a generational difference on this question. Lowy reported that Quote, more than half the population aged over 45, 55%, say Australia should support the United States, while only 36% of Australians aged 18 to 44 agree with that approach. Younger Australians are more likely to say that Australia should remain neutral, with 6 in 10 Australians aged 18 to 44, 60%, choosing this position. Only 43% of Australians aged over 45 prefer neutrality, unquote. Doubtless the preference of the over 45s for war is because they do not imagine they will be sent to fight or that their children and grandchildren will be conscripted for the purpose or that China will actually fight back by a nuclear strike on Australia. Or perhaps they are working on the logic that nuclear arms escalation will act as a deterrent and it will not come to war. If so, it is a doubtful bet because arms escalation will have at least as much propensity to cause a war as not. But regardless of what is behind the logic or folly of an increased appetite for war, 
the fact that it poses yet another existential threat to Australia, as if climate change wasn't enough, implies an imperative for development of resilience and for maximisation of the capacity for deciding which wars are worth fighting and which are not. If we are to determine that, we will need a conversation involving all Australians to identify our strategic interests, particularly in our region of the world. Only then can we devise a well-integrated foreign policy and defence strategy capable of protecting what is truly necessary to protect in order to maintain the standard of well-being we need. That absolutely necessary conversation can only be sustained if Australia maintains its independence in national sovereignty. As yet, independence in national sovereignty is not a value enshrined in our consciousness. It's not like mateship or the fair go. It is not yet embedded in our discourse, probably because we are still only dimly aware that our grip on sovereignty over this continent might be at risk, or might even be already lost in some measure to America. But the value of independence in sovereignty is essential to a rational discourse for any people wishing to define and prepare themselves for a new era of self-determined nationhood. As such, it is highly advisable to build it into a people's constitution. It underpins our capacity to realise every other value on the left-hand side of the table. Chapter 5, Part 6, Values to Future-Proof Australia. Second value, self-determination through a voice in our own governance. In the 2020s, it should be self-evident that self-determination is valued not just as the rightful power of Australian citizens, but as the key to a future in which we can maintain an acceptable level of well-being, security and cohesion as a nation. It should be evident that a voice in our own democracy means the difference between being able to build the future we want and being dragged to a future we do not. But in general discourse... I would have to say that it is not evident that a noticeable majority of Australians give much thought to the need for a voice in their own polity, one that will enable them to determine their future themselves, either as individuals or as a nation. Australians speak about what they want for the future all the time, but they also defer to a political system which assumes leaders will simply deliver it, or something like it, even though they have not coherently articulated their preferences for the sort of life they wish to be able to live. It is as though there is a missing step in the middle of our cyclical process of democratic elections, a step where we express our preferred national agenda before we take another step to choose who might be best qualified to deliver it. The omission should be glaring, but apparently it is not. It should be obvious that if we wish to travel to a particular future, we must describe that destination and build a map of the safe routes towards it. But apparently, it is not obvious. Australians engage in haphazard calls for progress, but they do not call for collaborative development of well-integrated plans for progress. They do not call for establishment of a process by which they can think ahead in a collegiate, orderly framework. Despite the fact that lack of a national plan makes Australians fully vulnerable to loss of their preferred future, 
They do not clamour for a change in the process of democracy that would enable them to reduce that vulnerability. They do not clamour for self-determination as such. This quietude might be explained by the fact that it is difficult to determine what self-determination is, and even more difficult to imagine how it might be achieved. How can so many diverse individuals and cultures cohere in their determination about the sort of nation they want to build and still determine their own personal future? How can they still preserve their diversity? Granted, it is a confusing notion. And this may explain, at least in part, why self-determination has not come to the fore as a value for Australians since it was first articulated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 as an absolutely essential right if human beings are to enjoy freedom from fear and want. The failure may also have arisen from the fact that the majority of Australians have not suffered fear and want over recent decades and so have not felt the need to exercise the right of self-determination. However, it is apparent that the majority of Australians are not feeling as secure in their well-being as they came to feel in the second half of the 20th century. And Indigenous Australians have never felt secure, which is why their voices have grown louder on the need for self-determination. In that rising chorus, we might see that self-determination is not an indefinable and irrelevant abstraction for anyone living in a democracy. It can be defined simply as a voice within a democracy, a voice to which we are all entitled and without which we will expose ourselves to a future we do not prefer. As First Nations steam ahead on their course to a future where their children will flourish, they are trailblazing for other Australians a course towards the sort of reformed and strengthened democracy that will be essential if we are to ensure that all our children will flourish. In the wisdom born of their heart-rending loss, they have concluded that the essentials for their future are voice, treaty and truth. And this is wisdom they have offered to Australians without the slightest intimation of threat to our security or the stability of the post-colonial nation that was built at the expense of First Nations. On the contrary, as Indigenous lawyer Noel Pearson said in his Boyer Lectures for the ABC in 2022, quote, The cause of Indigenous recognition is not a separatist cause. Far from it. It is a cause for peace and unity. It represents the desire for reconciliation and what the country's 21st Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, called our people's rightful place in the nation. Let me combine Whitlam and Howard's words, he said, and suggest that recognition is about the rightful but not separate place of Indigenous Australians in the Commonwealth of Australia. Indigenous Australians want in to the Australian Constitution. That is the point. Despite the history of discrimination and exclusion, despite everything, we want in. We want to be part of Australia, formally and permanently. Unquote. In practical terms, Australia's First Nations know that the first step on their path in to the Constitution is their voice, and that if they do not succeed in this step, 
they will not secure their children's future. I would like to suggest that it is the same for non-Indigenous Australians. They likewise need a path in to the Constitution. We all need a voice in it. Furthermore, if the Indigenous voice is to be a successful path to a better future for the children of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders, it will need to be enshrined in a constitution which offers a process by which all Australians can express their will for the future. We will need a process by which we can express what a decent future means for us in all our diversity. I will explain this in more detail in the next few chapters, but in short, it means that the wisdom shown by First Nations in their call for a voice, treaty and truth will need to be reciprocated and constitutionally supported by a synchronous call from all Australians for values, rights and a voice in the Constitution. A people's constitution can offer a framework whereby everyone who wants in can move in and build a future where our children will flourish. That necessarily supportive mechanism starts with a statement of Australian values. And I will now turn to the issue of how that may be enshrined.